and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Professor Ellie Rennie alongside Dr. Michael Zagam on algorithms as policy. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. To start us off, Ellie, perhaps you can help us contextualize policy. So what is policy in the broadest sense and why is it relevant to speak about today? I think of policy as being a means to affect change over a particular sphere. So you say this is the outcome that we are hoping to achieve and these are the means by which we want to do that. And usually that might involve a process of negotiation or consultation with people who this is going to affect. And then you end up usually with a text. And sometimes that text is the result of all kinds of negotiations and compromises. But it's the thing that says what people are going to do and hopefully the result of that. So some people I think of... uh, The education theorist, Stephen Ball, for instance, who uses the word ad hocery as being part of the policy process, and I think that's fairly accurate. Uh, There's a, a lot of various inputs that go in and something probably of a compromise nature that comes out. But I think the the other key thing to think about is whether when we make a policy, we are actually going to achieve what it is we set out to do. And I think in many cases, it's impossible to predict the outcomes of policy. It's a desired end state rather than a uh, a known outcome, but it's the best that we can try to do given the circumstances within which we're working at a particular point in time. So policies, in other words, can be very messy uh, policy making can be fraught, but uh, hopefully it takes us a step closer to uh, maybe a social good. Thank you. That's very helpful. And I think, you know, really conceptualizing policy making as a governance process will then be relevant to us a bit later when we start to talk about these examples in blockchains and DAOs. Zagam, I'd love to hear from you within the context of your work, which perhaps you could introduce for us. How does policy apply? Sure. I think it's important to look at someone's sort of background and how they come to these concepts. I'm personally a um, control theorist by formal training, which means that I've designed and tested algorithms that are meant to drive specific outcomes. And so what's interesting about that particular line of um, reasoning or that that field is that actually you set a priori goals and guess relatively top down way, but you you declare the desired outcomes and then you look at the way that the systems work or the way that you believe they work and you you construct algorithms that are meant to sort of observe and then sort of synthesize or interpret the observations to come to decisions and to then take those decisions and then drive outcomes. And so they, the control theory literature actually uses the term policy for the decision-making algorithms that respond to observed um, 
phenomena and return actions, which then in turn ideally produce intended outcomes. So there's a very formal, very technical definition of um, a policy in, in that particular literature, but it's it's actually as an algorithm. It's the it's the decision making procedure that takes the observed information, makes a decision, but it's always predicated on an intended outcome or target signal or trajectory. This provides us a little bit of a window into um, how the policymaking in the broader social sense might actually come into being in the context of a um, a digital infrastructure or some um, space that we're governing that is made up predominantly of algorithms or algorithmic decision making. And so the term policy is actually pretty natural in the sense that it's a ar arguably subjective thing that you use to make decisions to drive some target outcomes. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially in terms of subjectivity, which I'd like to come back to. But I guess now we're talking about policy in the context of algorithmic governance. And Ellie, I'd love to throw back to you to help us do some kind of conceptualization around algorithmic governance systems and how we're kind of porting this policy concept across. Sure. I, look, I think in the field of internet studies or media and communication studies, the idea of algorithmic governance has been discussed for a long time, probably in two different ways. Uh, so there's the broader concept of platform governance, which can mean simply the policies and procedures of how platforms work, which may involve algorithms, for instance, how they use algorithms to enforce particular community standards say, you know, things even like YouTube looking out for uh, orange jumpsuits and, you know, deciding that it's going to block all videos that show that. Um, or it can mean, I suppose, in other ways, uh, things like bespoke bots that might be brought into systems and their effects on how that community behaves within a particular platform. And then there's uh, platform governance as in the extent to, at a very, very broad level, the extent to which platforms may have ways of instituting policies in the world that go beyond state boundaries. Uh, so that is more what is the, the broader uh, geopolitical outcome of platforms. Interesting. I think I would like to sort of introduce this concept of a platform abstraction, which is just, it, it doesn't matter whether it's a web-based platform or a Web3 thing or really any construction. If we have the idea of a platform, we generally have the idea of enabling or facilitating some activity amongst the users or members or constituents of the 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 space created by the platform. And when we deal with this kind of construction, we have to separate the roles of the participants within the scope of that that system or you know, who share the action space provided by that system um, versus the people who are actually responsible for shaping that space. And, and to be clear, I've found this particular way of describing it in part based on some conversations with you, Ellie, uh, around the definition of governance as, a, um, as the act of shaping the field of action for others. I believe that's Foucault. Um, 
the idea of the platform abstraction actually brings us back to the question of the difference between those who are the constituents or participants within the platform from those who actually make policy or set the rules or define the kinds of interactions that are allowed within that space. And, and I like that way of looking at it in part because it it applies for um, you know, web two based platforms, it applies for web three based platforms, and you can even think of it as being um, a way of interpreting uh, a more traditional government sort of platform for social interaction rule sets that say this is what's appropriate modes of interaction and here are the consequences for violating those without actually breaking the abstraction. Yeah, and I, I suppose one of the the concerns with algorithmic policy or governance is the extent to which we can even know that that's occurring so that we have uh, systems which are creating a background scenario which we are acting within but we're not necessarily able to know or see that so there's a kind of transparency issue involved uh, but I think also exactly to your point who gets to make those policies uh, and do the, I suppose, so-called citizens of those uh, platforms uh, or is it purely just a consumer slash user relationship able to influence that? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And when we're talking about kind of very administrative sort of bureaucratic or mundane kind of day-to-day governance processes in a way. It's very interesting to think about in the context of uh, blockchain-based decentralized autonomous organizations that aim to be uh, kind of participatory and, and all of these good things. What does it mean to actually go through this process of shaping the rules of those systems? And as you've both pointed out, uh, kind of who gets to decide when the shaping of the algorithmic policy or the rules is subjective in and of itself. I think in particular in the in the space of Web3, we see a lot of bureaucratic function being automated. And I think that really helps with the understanding of algorithms as policy simply because the very rulemaking that the algorithms automate actually is a matter of policy if for some reason it was being implemented uh, manually. So like if humans were just doing those steps, even if they were doing them sort of with oversight and we were ensuring that they weren't breaking the rules, et cetera, the things that the technology affords us, the ability to sort of automate the checking and validation of the rules being followed. But ultimately, if those same rules were you know, enforced through another means, they would be very clearly within the domain of policy. Yeah, um, I agree. I wrote a little piece about the DAO as the bureaucrat where you have the humans within that DAO as the political principles who are making decisions and then it's the smart contract that is enacting those decisions. And that, I think, brings into play some things to look out for, for instance, the separation between those powers, which might be the degree to which things are automated versus require, requiring a high level of input from the political principles, which to some could, in, in I suppose even classical 
theory contexts, and I'm thinking here actually of Fukuyama's work, can perhaps lead to um, forms of corruption, which is why sometimes the idea of being able to automate the the policy uh, can be seen as a, a form of separation of powers which may simplify some processes. So I think for me, and I think, Zagam, this is really where your expertise comes in and is incredibly useful in every for everybody involved in this area, is just this concept of how do we figure out where this is going to be uh, making processes better for those people making decisions or who are affected by the outcomes versus where the algorithm is uh, making things less explainable or transparent or um, or just unknowable in terms of where who how it's going to affect the world. Uh, and particularly the constituents of that group. Yeah, I think one of the most common um, difficulties with the automation of administrative processes is this double-edged sword related to administrative power. So you want to automate in order to sort of limit the extent to which discretion in the administration of these processes leads to a power asymmetry in favor of the bureaucrat, essentially. But on the other hand, you make the person who actually developed the rules that were automated much more powerful. Now, the challenge with this is that A, this person may not have any understanding of the downstream consequences of the policies they're making on one or more of the stakeholder groups within that system. Furthermore, they may have an incentive to actually skew the system in their favor. We could almost think of this in a Rawlsian justice kind of way where you're creating the rules for a system where you know which role you're starting in and therefore you don't really have to worry about, or at least if you're selfish, you may not even think about the other roles roles besides yourself and the opportunities that those rules will afford those other people. And so that hidden sort of misalignment between the policy maker as software engineer who developed the rules that are automated and, you know, potentially immutable, they, they're at one hand, they're ensuring that the future participants are not subject to the discretion of some bureaucrat, but they're actually perpetuating, subjecting everyone to the choices of that original, you know, coder policymaker. And that's not to say it's bad per se, it's that we should maybe put this policymaking lens on the original development of the rules and say, hey, these rules are policymaking. Um, this coding is filling this function in this system. So let's actually make sure that um, it's recognizing the needs of multiple stakeholders. And to your point earlier, that's a messy thing. And I think that's one of the big challenges. We bestow upon software a kind of objectivity that we have to kind of yank back if we want to do a healthy um, policymaking exercise, whether it's at the time of the original rulemaking or at the consideration of future changes to those rules if for some reason the outcomes aren't in alignment with the wants and needs of the constituents of that system. Yeah, and I think it's really also about the initial inputs as much as being able to change course. 
So what information are you using in order to create this particular policy? And, of course, we've been through decades now of so-called evidence-based policy, which privileges, um, I suppose, a kind of datafication of social processes as well as uh, a kind of rational idea of how the world works, which is not necessarily uh, the case. Um, and, you know, I can take a very simple example, being a bartender in Glasgow in the mid-90s. I think the government at the time looked at violence on the streets and saw that, you know, most violence was occurring between the hours of 1 and 3 a.m. So let's close nightclubs. Everybody has to be in but to a nightclub at midnight and out by 3 a.m., which to anyone who actually worked in bars and nightclubs at that time will they would have known that that's just putting drunk people on the street at exactly the same hours, which is going to create more problems. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a very banal example, but the it it, it it's just a it's those cases where um, you have people who are not necessarily inside a system or make or, or are just using very. Uh, blunt metrics to decide what the best course of action is without really understanding the what's going on on the streets, literally in that case. This is also important in the context of our algorithms in particular because measurement and what is measurable has a massive effect on outcomes in the sense that no measurement is ever going to be a perfect representation of the phenomena that you're trying to steer or otherwise maybe mitigate, but but if impact. And the challenge that you run into is that then no matter what data you use, no matter how good, your measurement apparatus itself becomes uh, an element of the policymaking space. Because if we say this is how we measure something, and then we input some other mechanisms or, or policies in order to sort of improve that metric or reduce the sort of negative effect that we're measuring, then uh, the choice about how and when we measure or clean or otherwise work with the data uh, directly affects the the outcomes and who's affected. And we've seen this in a lot of the, um, let's say in particular, business use cases for using machine learning and other techniques to drive certain goals. You know, you get what you asked a computer to do, not what you wanted it to do. So it will use the data that you collected and measure the objective the way that you defined it and improve that outcome you asked for, almost always at the expense of something you didn't know to ask about or didn't think of at the time. So you really always need this outer feedback loop that represents, okay, my data says I'm achieving this goal, but like in the real life, you know, sense, if you were to go out and talk to people, or if you were to go out and look at things, you know, did I actually achieve that goal? And at least to me, this story about the bartenders sort of covers that territory because it says, sure, in your data, maybe this made sense, but if you actually went and observed the thing directly, instead of trying to rely on some necessarily imperfect data set, um, you'd come to a very different conclusion. And I suppose that is the attraction, isn't it, with DAOs, is that it's the people, it's the community, it's those who are presumably affected or have a stake, literally, uh, in the thing, who are involved in that process, correct? 
I think so very much. In the engineering discipline, you have this concept of uh, public involvement. So basically, public involvement is this process through which you um, engage with the direct stakeholders. And this is like in a civil engineering setting. You would um, engage with the people who will be directly affected by the infrastructure work and understand better their needs and how the work to put things in, um, to, to actually do the say building, if you're taking down a bridge and then you're going to put a new one in, there's going to be disruptions. And so there's a process through which, you know, expectations are managed, feedback is gotten, and you engage with those people who will be directly affected by the, the ongoing work. I guess to your previous point, like that really highlights the synergy here between the engineering and the ethnography or that kind of social and, and technical in terms of the need for the observation as a feedback loop. Uh, Zagam, you've been involved in a number of these kind of algorithmic process designs for uh, blockchain projects and DAOs. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that process, perhaps starting with what you've termed the governance surface. Sure. Um, the term governance surface is a ter- is something that we use to describe the set of actions available to govern a system or in this case if there's a set of actions that are available to you know participants within a system or a set of rules that dictate if they do things then another thing is the consequence these kind of rules of the system there's a second layer of rules that represent how you change the rules and so we've been using the term governance surface both in the you know broad sense to mean um you know the rules about how you change the rules, uh, but also in a narrow sense in the case of smart contracts or software, where the software doesn't actually need to be totally changed, but rather it contains methods specifically to change the rules. That could mean parameter changes. That could mean like ratcheting techniques where you flip a bit and turn off certain methods or any rule change rule or like sort of second order rule in the software or in particular in a smart contract such that you are using the methods which change the rules about how other methods work. Um, the broad definition is useful when comparing to policy making generally and the narrow definition is most useful when designing software for implementation in a Web3 context. Uh, maybe to make it more concrete, there's a specific project that we've studied some together um, called SourceCred, which is not specifically on a smart contract, but it is a set of algorithms used to measure the productive activity of a community building stuff. And that particular um, algorithm basically uses a variation of page rank on a graph of contributions by the community stakeholders. And that score that is computed over those contributions and attributed to contributors is used for um, rewarding them financially. And as a result, it's actually pretty critical to the system. And I would describe the governance surface of that system as being the parameters of that algorithm. So what kinds of contributions get indexed? What are the various weights of the graph that are used when computing the page rank and some of the parameters of that page rank algorithm? Or more broadly, the the measurement apparatus itself. There have also been considerations for changing the the cred algorithm, which would be a larger change, but sort of technically still within that governance surface because the community controls their own rule about how they measure the value of individual contributions and the value of contributors' contributions to that collective contribution graph, so how they build the graph and how they score it. Um, 
if we think about the governance surface of that organization, one of the critical elements is the, the state of that algorithm, the rules about how important certain activities are. And that example is also a, a good one and a really interesting one, I think, because SourceCred's original thesis as put forward by the founder Dandelion was that it's only really through community attention that you can make sure that that algorithm is not gamed. So it proceeds with this idea of... Um, uh, yeah, the the community custodianship and uh, constant just observance of how it is performing and the outcomes that it produces. So how do those themes of subjectivity and I guess transparency vis-a-vis legibility, I guess, is what the more general uh, literature about algorithmic systems says, how do they fold in to this example with source cred? So there's at least three different concepts, actually. It's not even just the two, because I think the Web3 community really loves the term transparency and uses it because the there is data that can be looked at, but it's not particularly legible in the sense that mm. making sense of it requires a higher order set of skills that you kind of have to mine that data and mine it and organize it in a way that provides um, meaningful visibility into what's going on. But the other concept that I think needs to come in here is to differentiate between sort of legibility of the activities, I see that you did this, or I see that you know this has happened, versus the legibility about cause and effect. Because one thing I've noticed is that a lot of people understand the sort of immediate cause of effect of activities, like when I do this, this happens. That's very much in the domain of the rulemaking. But in these systems that have these, they're socio-technical systems, they involve both the technical rules and behavior. There's often a lot of you know, misunderstanding about the consequences at the group level. So you make a set of rules that sort of imply that things would move in one direction, but the counter effect actually is stronger than the direction of the original activity. And as I understand it, this is relatively well understood in the sort of sociology, social science literature, and in the technical literature and control theory. But somewhere in the middle, there's this like wide berth of, you know, I say like confusion between knowledge of individual cause and effect and knowledge of sort of like system level cause and effect, especially as it pertains to changes in policy making with the intent of moving the system in a particular direction. Yeah. And just the concept of transparency, uh, it, when applied in a general fashion, I think one of my problems with, with the idea of transparency is it can just lead to this constant auditing and, uh, you know, anxiety over the behaviour of everything. Um, and, and also I think overlays a very um, flat, if that's the, the, the right way of thinking about it, idea of that if, if it's visible then we know it and we understand it, but without really giving attention to, well, what capabilities are 
being enabled or shut down by this particular thing. So it's partly about what capabilities are enabled by this particular thing. Uh, The idea that we can know and see everything, that, that that is our way out of a predicament, doesn't sit right for me because you're not necessarily taking into account all the factors uh, or how it is influencing a particular group in a certain way or their experience of that. So I think within um, within some fields, I suppose on the more social science end of things, uh, there's there there are attempts to not just see these as issues of transparency or even visibility but to try to probe uh, what the effects are in a meaningful way for particular groups but, and also what the underlying uh, dynamics of the thing are that, that are at play too. Yeah, it's interesting how much of the literature, at least as I've seen it, ranging from sort of Ostrom commenting on, you know, monitoring as a critical for sort of norm enforcement, norm um, formation and enforcement, as well as the um, sort of the the literature that follows from Axelrod's work on the evolution of cooperation also kind of converges on this idea that you can't really have the indirect reciprocity concept, this idea that people might respond to you on behalf of your, in response to your responses to other people, unless you have a high degree of transparency in the sense that people can see what's going on. But on the whole, this sort of assumes that everyone has the spare attention to do that monitoring. So there's a lot of missing links around sort of how the loop closes between the activity, the say data or observations of the activity, the ultimate um, interpretation of those activities with respect to norms, and then you know the means through which people actually enforce those norms through more informal means. Like you don't have to do something, but people will treat you differently because they observe that you behaved in a certain way. And sort of understanding that that's not a magic wand that you can't just say, oh, it's transparent, everyone will behave well. It really does create its own challenges around um, who whose behaviors or what types of behaviors are actually easy to recognize and what kinds of normative responses emerge. And in fact, that becomes part of this closure with the social system because at some level, the norms are always going to evolve with the sort of the community's sense of what is and is not appropriate. And, you know, without going too far off the deep end on the topic, I think it is really important to understand that it's not a you know, magic, it's not a magic solution. When you create transparency, you create the possibility for the emergence of and enforcement of norms, but you don't get them for free. Mm. And I think the other side to this, uh, for me that I'm particularly interested in is how do you know before you put something in place? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, in the field of Social science, of course, we've had things like randomised control trials in uh, economics. So, you know, the Duflo Banerjee work that won the Nobel Prize um, not that long ago. And then I suppose interventions into that around the need for mixed methods because you don't really understand why a thing happens unless you um, try to understand the factors within which it's occurring. And for me, it's, I mean, policy, all policy is a social experiment. Uh, 
And the question is the extent to which you can do that in a controlled way that's not too harmful before you decide to uh, just allow it into an entire population. But, uh, I mean, I, I suppose my question back to you, Zagam, is to what extent and how is that done in this area of algorithms as policy? I just want to comment on that insight, Ellie, as well. How is it done within the ideological context of, you know, DAO communities as well as these rapid kind of communities of experimentation, but to the level to which people are cognizant of what's actually happening in, in the in the governance experimentation here. Zagam. I was just going to say, you know, in, in short, the best thing that we can do is kind of go out and think of it less as a controlled experiment and more like field science. I can comment a little bit on my experiences as a, you know, at times a contributor and at times a sort of just community member and researcher with respect to the source code community. The single biggest thing that stood out to me was that I expected the community to iterate on their their algorithms more, and in in practice, they iterated on their norms more. Like the way that the community determined what was and was not appropriate behavior was a much stronger feedback loop than the ways in which they changed their algorithms or retuned the various variables that determined what was strongly or weakly or relatively valued. And so like realizing that, I just kind of broke this initial assumption that, oh, we have this governance surface, this reasonably well-defined algorithmic policy, and we know what all the levers are. But because it wasn't immediately clear to anyone what would happen if they changed something, rather than change the algorithms, it seemed that there was a tendency to create strong norms and strong norm enforcement around what kinds of activities vis-a-vis, you know, emojis and responses and discord and discord and the various spaces that made up their collaboration. Um, And it's actually a really cool solution because it's not what I expected. And I never would have designed a controlled trial to figure that out, but it was possible to observe that by just interacting with the community and looking at how they chose to evolve both their rules and their behavior over time. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's right in that we we can observe what's already occurring and how people, uh, what choices people make in particular circumstances and maybe the next algorithm that's created uh, is kind of incrementally improved upon the last. This was also very bottom-up. I would say that the alternative example from some of the research that I've done with Kelsey and others comes from the Gitcoin DAO. And I'd like to introduce that example because it it provides a little bit of um, insight into how the Web3 and Web2 concepts come together. Um, the motivation for this here is, so Gitcoin um, uses a funding model called quadratic funding that model is essentially giving uh, matching funds in their crowdfunding campaigns, which are proportional to the square root of the funds of the individual contributors. So the important factor is that if you have lots of small donations, you'll get more match fundings than you know a small number of, of big donations. And with this, it becomes somewhat, um, well, almost misaligned with the the pseudonymity 
pseudonymity of Web3 because it's relatively easy for someone with a large sum of funds to break themselves up into lots of small actors or to distribute funds if you don't have strong civil resistance mechanisms. And the Gitcoin team has done a lot of great work to, to create those civil resistance mechanisms in order to make this algorithm really work in their use case. And it's been awesome. But as long as you have that civil sensitivity, you need pretty strong civil resistance. And the work on uh, civil resistance within the Gitcoin DAO, within the Gitcoin community, really took up uh, nine to 12 months ago with some community research projects with the token engineering community going through the data and trying to figure out um, what kind of activities were actually happening and start to deduce the frequency of these kinds of, you know, fake actors, and actually gave rise to a machine learning pipeline that could do binary classification. So start to identify which actors are at risk of being Sybils. And as that kind of proceeded, it became pretty obvious that this is a pretty canonical justice theory problem, because you can never be perfectly right. It's a, sometimes you get people who are not Sybils who read like Sybils in the data, and sometimes you get people who do a really good job pretending to look like real people. And as long as that's going to be part of the platform, you're going to need some degree of um, iteration and training and supervision of those algorithms. You're going to need to refine the features and do cross-validation and create training sets and observe the emerging behaviors of attackers and learn, retrain your models. And so um, I, I bring this example up because the Web3 nature of Gitcoin means you can't just have a you know centralized third-party fraud detection service. Like you're effectively policy making, you're interpreting the terms and conditions and you're building algorithms that effectively use those goals and say, okay, well, let's go find the people who are, you know, the, the goal is to go find the instances of accounts that violate these rules insofar as they are, you know, duplicates or fakes. And operationalizing that requires a bunch of humans and literally data scientists as bureaucrats fulfilling this function. And the algorithms that they make in turn become the, um, the execution at the level of it runs in real time during the round and spits out trues and falses, and the outcomes of that are subject to dispute by end users, but ultimately represent the platform's capacity to deduce what's an attack from what's honest behavior. I really like like exploring this case because we're trying to accomplish this without relying on a again a, a sort of centralized platform, but rather to part like decentralize or at least make participatory the part wow this is i'm going to need to start that over we are we are really trying to make it a participatory activity so that the people who are being affected by this are actually part of the supervision process part of the you know feature building process and otherwise involved in the policy making so that it's not simply a case of you know some experts over there decided that these are the rules for what's fraud and what's not but the 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 appropriate constituents of the system participate. And that's a real rub, right? We don't totally even know how to decide um, who gets to participate. And so as it stands, there's a sort of funnel where people kind of get involved and their backgrounds matter because you need data scientists. But on the other hand, you 
want to make sure that there's a pathway for anyone who's interested to come in and get involved, learn to be a productive contributor, maybe start with more of a data labeling role where you're going through and looking at individual actors and flagging based on your human assessment whether they're um, civil or not and feeding that in as training data. But that whole process has been a point of development. And actually, mm-hmm. Kelsey's writing some case studies and analyzing it because it's a, it's an experiment. And to Ellie's point, like we didn't know the answer. We just had to start trying something um, in order to uh, meet the needs of the platform, civil resistance, and actually meet the needs of the end users, making it possible for them to meaningfully participate in that algorithmic policymaking process. Mm, yeah, it's such a fantastic example. And I guess to clarify, I had the privilege of observing both block science as they worked with the Gitcoin project to design the algorithmic machine learning Sybil detection pipeline. So this kind of algorithmic policy making process. And then Gitcoin transitioned to a DAO. So the governance of this process and the broader organization was was a really just a moving feast. And I guess some of the insights there in terms of what did it mean to organize as a DAO and uh, oversee the sort of uh, governance of algorithms and govern by algorithms was the ways in which the, the DAO really acted as an institutional framework to guide the algorithmic governance. And I think, Ali, you sort of found similar in source code, which I'd love to hear, but these um, kind of multi-level governance uh, I guess uh, hierarchies in a in a good sense, in a multi sort of polar sense um, or polycentric sense emerged, where there was the working group and volunteers were drawn in, as well as the broader DAO that was figuring out how to govern decisions related to the entire DAO, not just the specific machine learning process. And then one of the other insights was just the importance of Gitcoin's terms and conditions and in lots of other DAOs that's more kind of constructed as a constitution but whatever there is as kind of a north star or guiding documentation to determine what isn't isn't suitable in terms of uh, community settings and algorithmic settings is becomes really important uh, in the the subjectivity of these systems, which I thought was really interesting. But Ellie, did you what did you find in SourceCred in terms of the actual DAO as an institutional framework to guide the processes that happened within? Well, it's still very much ongoing, so no concrete findings. And uh, you know, it, it's probably I would describe SourceCred more as a community than a functioning like other DAOs officially in that respect. Uh, but it it is a very open and porous community in that people come and go and they, um, you know, their, their membership is determined very much by their contributions also because of the nature of the work that they do. Uh, and I, I think I think that's right, that what, what we see occurring so far I think one of the recent things that this community has been grappling with is what we were talking about before, which is the level of technical expertise that is required to really understand the algorithm. 
and therefore uh, new versions are being developed, so one in particular, to provide uh, those who choose to use the source code instance with more transparency uh, or visibility or just a a way to get a a much quicker pulse on what's occurring if you're a non-technical person. At least that's my understanding of, of what they're working on. So I think that there, there and, and, and in the process, I think for me, one of the interesting things to observe more as an ethnographer is there's also a, a, an emotional labor and process that goes on where you're um, attached to this thing you're, that you're creating, you're concerned about what it is producing or doing and then working with others, sometimes in conflict, sometimes in harmony to decide whether a change just is, you know, needs to happen here or um, whether it's a different iteration that is required. I'll throw it back to Zagan because he's, also, he's actually been involved in this community for a lot longer than, than I have. Yeah, I think the comment that I, that I'd like to make that I hope kind of rounds out with our earlier discussions is one about the nature of the the rulemaking in these systems though because as a lot of people saying or at least implying that we're eliminating this kind of bureaucrat or this administrative power through automation and what you're describing basically says to me that we've really just moved the skill set we've moved the role around it's the people with more technical skills who are actually um, implementing the policies they're the ones that are determining the outcomes they're the ones whose um, specific uh, decisions or subjectivities are getting encoded and imposed on everyone else. And we haven't gotten rid of that. We've really just changed which roles are associated with it. And so as a algorithm designer or as someone who builds analytics to monitor these systems, what I have seen at least is that we haven't removed those things at all. We've just shifted which, which role types or which skill sets are most closely related with the the, the power and, and that power is encoded in the choices of you know, algorithms, parameters, mechanisms, rules of any kind. Um, and I don't want to like over um, overemphasize it, but I simply think that we have to acknowledge that as the same class of activity as policymaking in a traditional sense just happen to be in a different material or a different medium and that comes with a requirement for different technical skills maybe not so much for a different requirement in the way of social skills vis-a-vis negotiation and coalition building and you know building buy-in amongst the people who um, would be beholden to those decisions i think for me i find your gitcoin example fascinating because it really speaks to a specific challenge that this particular project encountered that arose because of its you know its online web3 makeup and that what that says is you know we're no longer just working in this world where there are interest groups and politicians and citizens all trying to negotiate something we're now negotiating with things which are automated or which are occurring through the affordances of the technologies that are involved and which are taking actions as well within 
and upon us as a group. So therefore, we need uh, a means to be able to respond to that. And some of those responses, when we talk about governance surface, uh, and in the case of Gitcoin, are going to be um, com- computational, or they're going to be algorithmic, or whatever it might be, data science, all those kinds of needs. And then there will be others which are more around how that community comes together and works at problem solving, uh, but still within online spaces, which has its own complexity. So it, it's kind of the same thing as policy making, but we're just we're, we're we're dealing with new dimensions because of the technologies over which these interactions are occurring. And I don't want to lose sight of the the important capabilities that emerge through the use of those technologies. So to say that algorithms are now governing us and it's we we we'll be coming disempowered in the process to me loses which none of us here is saying at all, loses sight of the opportunities that are presented, particularly through Web3. Right. And and I think the key here is that when you have these algorithms with this automation that you have to keep in mind whether or not, or like keep in mind who those algorithms or whose decisions those algorithms represent. And at the end of the day, we can have participatory governance where the algorithms are taking decisions effectively on behalf of the the collective or the group, or they're taking decisions on behalf of, you know, an individual or as a designer, which is part of the reason I tend to like the civil engineering um, literature as a way of thinking about an engineer's role within a socio-technical system. Just like you're not actually representing what you think is best or is best for you. You're actually doing your best to serve a public. And you actually have to understand that public and even engage with that public in order to do the service of engineering in the context of a system where what you build affects some constituency. So on that note, we've had such an insightful and far-reaching conversation on the topic of algorithms as policy and in the context of governance processes in algorithmic systems. Do either of you have any further comments to add and where can people find you to learn more? I think for me, what the experience of observing these early days in DAOs and Web3 technologies has raised is that... uh, Policy making through algorithms is still complex just the way it is uh, without algorithms. Uh, And the main thing that we really need to keep focused on is how we understand the outcomes of these. And then I think as Zagam has been discussing, how that feedback occurs. So how how do we change course when we need to or refine a process? Uh, and that is something where, for me, the collective, the community, uh, the attention, the care that we see in decentralised autonomous organisations becomes incredibly important. And as researchers, that's, that's what we really need to uh, observe and understand more. I firmly agree that the keeping the humans as the, the goal setters and the evaluators of whether the outcomes are in line with their goals is critical. And for my part, I would say this concept that we use at Block Science is called computer-aided governance, and it's not meant to imply that the 
algorithms or computers do governance, but actually rather that they enable or empower humans to do better governance, which comes back to increasing transparency in a practical way, increasing legibility in a practical way, helping the human policymakers or rule makers of various kinds get clearer insights into the consequences of their policy making decisions, as well as to update their assumptions once they get new observations. Since as Ellie very much rightly pointed out earlier, we really don't have the luxury of these kind of deep controlled experiments. We're very much doing field science and you have to be able to make the most of the observations that you can make, both broadly in terms of the science of governance enabled by computers and narrowly in the scope of governance of any particular community where software and data are part of the equation. Kelsey, I'd like to hear your final thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that both of you touched on this idea of the place of humans. And I briefly mentioned ideology kind of earlier in the conversation. And it's really, it's just been a really fascinating exercise to port these existing concepts into the DAO kind of design space of decentralized algorithmic systems and try and sense make of, of what that means and what is and isn't okay and how you do these design processes and then how you observe and evaluate the outcomes of this. And so I think there's still a lot of uh, analysis or, or thinking through of what that means in terms of the place of people and the the role, you know, I hope in the higher order sort of tasks in these systems and then the role of algorithms as well as Zaga mentioned about, you know, enabling efficiencies. So that's one of the things that I'm most interested in watching unfold in DAO communities. Great. Um, I forgot to say that I'm on Twitter at Eleanor Rennie, Eleanor with an I, or Medium. And I'm available at mzargum on Twitter, and I'm also available through Block Science's Medium page and a few other sort of miscellaneous publications that you can find linking from there. So I'll absolutely provide uh, links to some of those uh, resources in the show notes and thank you so much to our guests Michael Zargon from Block Science and Ellie Rennie and thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn.